Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about sex and porn addiction from a woman's perspective, someone who, who recovered from sexual addiction. And uh, she's an excellent writer, but yes, I know she's not a scientist, she's not a researcher or psychologist, a therapist. The reason I have her on, although I emphasize using of like exploring a scientific approach to sexuality, is that I got so many emails from you guys that you wanted to more about stories of people's challenges, their approaches to sexuality. And of course, as a psychologist and a therapist, I can now provide you guys with the stories of my clients that would be unethical. And I would be happy to talk about my own sexuality, but that might resonate with small part of my listeners. So I thought it would be a better way of having authors on the show that they talked about, they wrote about their sexuality and they're open about talking about it. So uh, you guys can hear their stories and see if that resonates with you. Of course, we're not going to do it every episode and we're just going to do it every few months, but I thought it would be an interesting change. Please let me know if uh, this is something that you guys find helpful. You want more or less of these kinds of episodes. Our guest today is Erica Garza. She's an author of Getting Off book. Born, she was born in Los Angeles to Mexican parents. She has spent most of her adult life traveling and living abroad. She currently lives in LA with her husband and her daughter. Erica's essays have appeared in Salon, 
narratively past Marie Claire uh, and bunch of other publications and journals. She appeared as a guest on BBC Radio 4, Tom Hartman's The Big Picture, and again, other podcasts, other shows in 2010. She earned her MFA in creative nonfiction at Columbia University. Her memoir on sex addiction, Getting Off, is her first book. So I read her book. It's fantastic. It gives us such an honest narrative to a woman's challenge with sexuality and sexual addiction. So if that's something you guys want to learn more about, I highly encourage you to check out her book. The other thing I wanted to remind you that, you know, I'm not against pornography. I don't think every single person who watched porn is a porn addict because I certainly hear that among the couples that are coming into my practice that one of the partners are watching porn, the other partner, he or she doesn't like it and they kind of accuse of the partner as being a sex addict. But when we're talking about it, it just appears that there's a value discrepancy between partners. So sexual addiction, it is a specific term that defines sets of different symptoms and disorder kind of behaviors. And we have Dwayne Osterlin in few episodes back that he talked about like what is a sex or sexual addiction and uh, what recovery looks like. So if you guys want to learn more about that, I encourage you guys to check out that episode. Anyhow, without further ado, here's my interview with Erika Garza. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I'm so excited to have the author of Getting Off, Erika Garza, in our show today. Erika, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. I loved your book. I was talking about it in the introduction, and I feel it's very courageous of you to talk openly about sex because there's just in our society, unfortunately, there's so many negativity around sexuality. And then I've seen you like your book has been very well received. And I've seen that you've been in multiple TV interviews and TV shows with huge audiences. And I just wanted to know that how is it to talk about your sex life openly? And also, why did you decide to share your story with others? You know, I, I shared it for a number of reasons. But first of all, I felt like there's nothing more empowering than being able to talk about something that you've kept secret for a long time. And when I was in the early stages of my recovery, I was getting gradually more comfortable with being able to talk about these things because I had felt so ashamed for a long time about my sexuality. And I don't think anything fuels um, shame more than silence. And so I really felt like it was something I needed to talk about. And I had been getting gradually more comfortable in safer spaces like 12 step meetings and in talk therapy, you know, traditional talk therapy. And I had revealed it to my partner at the time, who's now my husband. So I was gradually talking about these things and it was getting easier and easier. But the last frontier was, you know, taking it to a public space. So I started writing about it back in 2014. And I did it with an essay that I published online called Tales of a Female Sex Addict. And the response I got from that one essay was so overwhelmingly positive. And it was from people who had felt like they were the only ones going through this for a really long time. And I knew what that felt like to feel that alone. And so 
when I heard from them, I felt like this is something that could actually help other people and I could be making a contribution that matters. And I really wanted to do something that would help other people feel like it's okay to be going through what you're going through. I've been there and I've gotten through it. And it felt like something that mattered. Right. And I feel one thing that you did, which was fantastic, giving the voice to women who are struggling with sexual addiction and sexual compulsivity, because we have few uh, movies, we have like some images that we see in different shows of a what sexual addiction looks like, which is usually a middle-aged man, Caucasian man that's struggling with it. And you're talking about in the book about your struggle of being a ethnic minority and also a female. And I think that was fantastic. Yeah, you know, I mean, I wanted to show that sex addiction can affect anybody, men and women, um, any ethnicity, whatever kind of background you grew up with. You know, I think that there is one common narrative, as you say, there's a middle-aged white man. And then when it comes to women, the story is that, oh, well, it was, you know, the woman must have been abused or raped or, you know, there must be this significant trauma that took place. It was important for me to show in my book that this can be much more diverse and that the conversation needs to be bigger and to include more people. Because what ends up happening is that if you're going through this struggle and your story doesn't fit what you think it's supposed to look like, then that just adds an extra layer of shame. And then you feel like, okay, well, I shouldn't talk about this. You know, it doesn't matter. There's must be something wrong with me alone. And then that leads to just more shame and more silence. And then you don't seek help. So I was really trying to broaden the conversation with my story. Right. And also, when I was reading your book and about your background, it was similar to many people that I know, many of my clients, and even myself, that women not necessarily, nothing traumatic, it seems like in a sense of big T trauma happened to you. It's when when we hear like sexual addiction, even my colleagues, other therapists, other psychologists, they think about childhood abuse. They think about mm-hmm. this like huge trauma of like, you know, like so-and-so, like parents who committed suicide, something drastic like that. But in mm-hmm. your book, you were talking about how it can happen to anyone with any kind of a life experiences. Absolutely. You know, and trauma can be ordinary trauma. Everybody goes through pain and everybody goes through uh, struggles. And it doesn't mean that your pain is any less significant, you know, and it doesn't mean that your addiction um, isn't something that's real and doesn't have real consequences for your life and for your happiness. I think it's important to include more stories so that more people feel like their their story matters and that they are worthy of, of being listened to and getting help. Right. And other thing is you were talking about in your book about how your porn obsession, I was just kind of like curious about that. How how do you kind of make sense of about how your porn obsession uh, started and how did it turn to an addiction? Because I feel for young adults, for teens, it's kind of common to be curious about pornography and some people kind of explore it and it's not necessarily turning to addiction. So I appreciate if you share your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I, and I did want to make certain, certainly clear in the book that this is not an anti-porn book. You know, yes, I had an issue with porn, but a lot of people can watch porn in a healthy way, just like some people can have a few glasses of wine and they don't need the whole bottle. But the way that it worked for me was it started off really innocently. I started watching when I was 12 and the internet wasn't um, not around then, not the way that it is now. So there were no streaming porn sites or anything like that. So the way that it worked for me is I started watching 
on cable TV late at night when my parents were asleep. Just very mild, softcore pornography. And I wanted to watch it a lot because it was exciting and it was curious and I liked the way it made my body feel. In retrospect, all of that, I think, is very normal to have that, that kind of curiosity and that kind of interest and want to watch it all the time. But what shifted for me was that not long after I made that discovery, and I had also discovered masturbation around the same time as that. Not long after those discoveries, I was diagnosed with scoliosis and I had to wear a back brace for two years. And that's when I started to feel very insecure, self-conscious. I didn't want the other kids to make fun of me. I was afraid of social rejection and I became very paranoid and worried. And the way that I dealt with those worries was that I would watch more softcore porn at night and I would masturbate more. And those were ways that I could effectively escape those big, scary feelings that I didn't know how to handle on my own in a healthy way. And I came to rely on masturbating and watching porn. And not long after all of that, then the internet came into the play. And so I was able to access chat rooms where I could talk to other people about sex. And then I could download pictures. And then streaming porn became available. So every time that I feel like I may have gotten over using sexuality as a crutch, then the internet only became more faster and more accessible. And I felt like I had endless resource to keep up with my habit. Right. And the other thing is about the internet that you were talking about. I think these days, especially these days with internet and like streaming pornography, it can make it very challenging for people who have vulnerability to addiction to have the behavior under control. Because when you're looking at when like in a past, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people were just going through Playboy or Penthouse. Mm -hmm. There was a couple of pictures, you were looking at the pictures and that you didn't have more. But these days with pornography, you watch something and immediately you get recommendation for 20 other very similar things that's part of you can be part of your erotic template. And it's easier for people to get hooked. Yeah. And then it's 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 very hard to um, turn away, as you say, because it's just endless. You can just keep clicking and and then you become there's the problem of becoming desensitized to something that you may like. And so then having to find more and more extreme and hardcore scenes that you may not have previously liked. And it for me, it was a gradual progression because I just didn't have access. So I can't imagine what it may feel like for a young person today to come across those images. And that's why I think it's really important for parents or, you know, even teachers maybe to speak to young people about pornography because it's something they're going to deal with in a way that we didn't deal with when, when we were younger. Um, and it's, it's something important I think needs to be talked about. People aren't talking about it enough. And you talked about desensitization, which is a very important, I think, topic. Do you find that when people are kind of watching porn, or maybe based on your experience, that people's kind of erotic template things that's arousing to them might change? I do. Yeah. I, I think that you your interests become more niche and you may need, you know, more hardcore, as I say, or extreme scenes to become aroused. Um, but it's something that, you know, I try to be really careful when I approach this topic because I don't want to cast judgment on what other people find arousing or not. I think that, you know, human sexuality and desire is all very complex. And, and as long as there's something happening between two consenting adults, I certainly don't want to cast judgment on that. But for me, I felt like I was starting to watch scenes that sort of disgusted me almost or shocked me. Like I, that was such a, 
and, and also made me feel ashamed because when I first masturbated and felt pleasure, I felt really ashamed about it. And I feel like I needed that component of shame going forward in the scenes that I would watch and in the partners I would choose in my life because I needed to have the shame with the pleasure. It became a combination that I, I came to rely on. And I'm not sure that that would have happened if I hadn't started watching porn and relying on porn so early. Right. And you talked about sexual shame overall. So what do you see is the connection between sexual shame and addiction? I think that the shame came about because no, when I first started masturbating after, you know, the, the obvious pleasure that I felt, I felt that huge sense of shame and guilt only because I didn't know that what I was doing was normal and what I was feeling was normal and that it was okay to, to feel pleasure. I was raised in a, in a Catholic Latino household and nobody ever talked about sex and they certainly did not talk about masturbation. And when it came to school, then, you know, it was a, it was the same story of, you know, a man, sex is something happens between a man and a woman and who are married and it's for procreation alone. There was no discussion of masturbation or, or pornography, obviously. There was no talk of, you know, sex outside of marriage and, and the pleasure side of it. And I feel like those are really important points to make because when you are exploring those things that don't fit within marriage for procreation, then you feel like what you're doing is automatically bad. And so that shame part of my sexuality, I feel was the most destructive part about it. And like I said, I started to watch porn that made me feel ashamed. And that meant more degrading scenes, hardcore scenes. And then I would seek partners who would treat me in a, in a negative way because I needed to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. They became intertwined with each other and I didn't know how to separate them. And I often wonder, would that have happened if I just felt like what I was going through was normal and if people had talked to me about it in the beginning? Right. As you were talking about shame and addiction, I was thinking about something that I notice a lot among between my clients, like the stories they're telling me. And also I'm coming from a very conservative background and based on the, I hear stories of my friends and even partly my, my story of growing up that parents want to protect their children and then they kind of, and also the culture and society and religion, and then it puts so much negativity toward sexuality. And I have parents kind of like punishing their kids when they mm -hmm. were a uh, master catch them masturbating. And I think that's can be very just that can be very destructive. Sure. You know, I think parents need to be a safe space for their children to go to with these questions um, and, and feel like they can speak openly with their parents. And, you know, I know that that may not be a comfortable conversation for any parent to have with their children, and especially if they're coming from a lineage as well where their parents didn't speak to them. But that cycle just it doesn't serve anybody. And then what ends up happening a lot of times is that kids may end up watching porn or, or going out with somebody and doing things that they're not really comfortable with, or they don't feel like they actually want to do, but they don't have any other reference points to talk about this. So they just keep doing it anyway, because they think that's what they're supposed to do, or that's what sex looks like. So I think that sex can become very performative. And it also can be quite destructive and dangerous. And, you know, kids will start having unprotected sex and also sorts of, you know, negative things could happen and could have been prevented if they just felt like they had a safe place to turn to to talk about these things before they engaged. Right. And also you're right about like lack of sex education. I feel these days, uh, many of you, many of the teens, they learn about sex through pornography. And again, like you, I'm not against pornography. I think it can be a good entertainment if it's been used in a contained way. But I feel like, you know, it's not a sex education. And many people right. use it as sex ed. And then 
they kind of have an idea what sex looks like. They, they think they need to have certain kind of body, have certain kind of attitude, but they never learn how to feel sexy and how sexy feels like. And I think that's an issue. Yes, I, I agree with you on that. The other thing is you were talking about how, you know, our sexuality can be broad. I agree with you on that. And again, specifically, if you're, you're engaging in certain kind of sexual behavior that's consensual, and it's not normative, at least what you kind of consider normal in the population, there might be nothing wrong with that. But I'm kind of curious to learn from you about how did your journey of recovery started? So when I was in my mid-20s, I think it's when I when I first started to question whether or not I had an issue with with sex and maybe sex addiction or porn addiction. I had been using it a lot and I felt like I was sabotaging a lot of my relationships and I was feeling really stuck and repeating the same patterns and lonely. And there was one relationship in particular, one that I, I really valued the person and I felt like he valued me and this could be love and we could get married. But I sabotaged that relationship because I just didn't feel worthy of love. And it was much easier to just stay by myself and these casual, no strings attached relationships and, and soothe myself with porn and just keep going down that path. But it also felt like it wasn't serving me anymore. And I was becoming much more aware of that. And it was hard to just shut off the reality of that. And my 30th birthday was coming up. So yeah, this was my late 20s. So my 30th birthday was coming up. And I thought, okay, I've got to do things differently, or this decade is going to be just like the last. And I don't want to do this anymore. I want to feel like I can change and, and be different and, and be better for myself. And um, so I took this trip to Bali because I had heard that it was really affordable and I knew there was a lot of yoga and meditation and healing centers. And I just sort of wanted to take care of myself and do something different and, and go on a journey and, and be on my own. So I went to this place and I started to really pay attention to what was happening in my head and what had happened to me so far and why I was so unhappy. And when I was in this clear headed space of taking care of myself and intending to change, I met my husband, and he was on his own path of recovery, recovering from drug addiction. And we just were able to kind of hold each other in this space of wanting to support each other and listen to each other. And it was the first relationship where I was able to reveal to somebody that I thought I may be a sex and a sex addict and a porn addict. And it was always the, you know, the most scariest thing. I didn't want somebody to find out about me. But when I revealed that to him, he was incredibly supportive and he didn't run away. And I thought, wow, this feels so good to be able to reveal something so real and to allow myself to be this honest and vulnerable with another person and be listened to. And it felt like it was something I needed to be working on in my life. And that's really when the shift happened for me. And I started to go to 12 step meetings after that. And I started to do some talk therapy. I did something called the Hoffman process. I started writing about my journey. It was so important for me to show in this book that recovery isn't just one thing, that sometimes it takes trying a lot of different things to find out what works for you. And I often thought that, you know, I was searching for the one solution, not realizing that it was the combination of those efforts that ended up helping me in the end. And that it was the persistence to keep trying new things to find that I was gradually changing and stepping into, you know, a po more positive direction. And it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that you continuously work at. Um, but I do feel like I'm in a much better place that I am today than than before, for sure. Right. And I love that, that you took time to kind of explore with yourself and kind of reflecting on whether it's an, this is an issue for you or not. 
And also you felt comfortable to talking about it with your with your husband there, uh, and your, I would imagine then boyfriend. What made you feel comfortable disclosing to him? Because I know that can be very tricky and it is such a vulnerable thing to talk about it with other people. He was, you know, he was just the kind of person that encouraged me that could catch when I was holding back and encourage me to say more and to reveal more and to listen intently without judgment and criticism. And, you know, I may have come across people like that in my past as well, but I was not ready in the past. So I do feel like it was the readiness. It was the willingness to change and to want to do better for myself and to love myself and to let love into my life. I think I needed that desire in order to meet somebody and let somebody in my life who would be healthy for me like that. Um, it starts with yourself and, and the ability, uh, the desire to change and grow. Right. And showing your vulnerability with, with someone can truly deepen the intimacy. And I think it was wonderful that he, he was getting the process of recovery himself because of it seems like he was in his own journey of recovery also. And the other thing I was thinking about is that some of my clients that they do wonderful work of like uh, processing their past around sexuality, they were for those of them that they struggle with sexual addiction, they tell me that when the, the relationship deepens, they lose interest in their partner because they need those kind of excitement, early stages of excitement. Was that something that you noticed? Not so much. Um, I know that that can happen for other people. But the thing for me is that I was so hungry for intimacy for a long time. And I think, you know, even when I was trying to keep things really no strings attached and casual and keep things really loose with other people, what I really wanted for so many years was just connection with other people and intimacy. So when I met him and revealed these things about myself and allowed myself to get vulnerable and let him see who I really was, it just, it was such a life-changing thing for me that I didn't want to risk that or throw that away. And I didn't really have a desire to destroy things because I had been destroying and sabotaging relationships for so long. It just wasn't part of me anymore. So that wasn't so much an issue. Great. So from what I'm hearing, it seems like you wanting to have connection, it was a big part of who, well, the, it was a value for you. And I think you were able to fulfill that by being truly intimate emotionally with your husband. The other thing that I, I really enjoy hearing is about your story of recovery that you talked about. Yes, you had this realization, you did 12, 12 steps and also talk therapy. So you tried a number of different things. And what I notice is at times people can try one single thing and it's not for them. And they totally kind of like give up on recovery. So it's wonderful to hear that you created your own kind of treatment plan and things that you yeah. found helpful. And I think that that's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's really, it's a necessary thing to do is to search who are, what do you like and what sorts of things do you like and, you know, what kind of person you are because it doesn't really fit to just choose one path, say this one path is for every person, you know, 12 step, that's all you need. That might not work for a person that might not, might not be something that, you know, is important to you. If you go to a 12 step meeting, you might be turned off by something and then you feel like, okay, well, I tried it. So that didn't work. I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing. I think it's really important to keep searching and see what works for you. And, and yes, to be creative about it and to make a treatment plan that works for you. Excellent. So I bet that your listeners, when I check out the book and your other writings, our listeners, and please tell us where they can find your information, your writing, link to the book. 
You can go to my website, which is ericagarza.com, and my book is on sale there. I also have um, my essays there, or you can go to Barnes & Noble, it's for sale, and Amazon is also a lot of independent booksellers that are selling the book as well. But my website is a good place to find not just the book, but also contact me. And I also, I love hearing from people who are struggling and I try to respond to every person um, that contacts me because it's, it's important to have that kind of connection. And I'm always happy to, to reach out and help people. Erica, thank you so much for giving a voice to women's struggles with pornography and addiction and being so brave. And I bet our listeners would love to contact you. I let, I leave the link to the show notes. So And thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Erica. I really appreciated her honest reflection on her journey of recovery and sharing with us what worked for her. If you notice that there is an issue around your sexuality, if you feel sexuality is more as a way of acting out for you and there is this compulsivity associated with that i encourage you to reach out and get help one thing at time that i notice with my clients that they they notice there's a problem in their sexual behaviors perhaps they're spending hours in front of porn watching porn and masturbating and they're not doing their daily responsibilities or You know, at times they go to massage parlors and it causes them to have issue in their family life at work. They go to 12 step programs and they feel, you know, the stories of these people are really cute. That's not my story. Then as a result, I'm not a sex addict or this is not an issue for me. I encourage you to think about sexual addiction and sexual compulsivity in a continuum. You might not be at the end of continuum as far as getting in legal problem and having major life consequences. But if you are struggling, if you feel uh, your sexual acting out behavior is getting in the way of the life that you want to leave, get in the way of your relationships, getting in the way of you completing the job that you love, I encourage you to reach out for help. If you're in LA, I can certainly help you. I have some training in sexual addiction treatment. Or if you're other part of country, there are wonderful therapists that are trained in providing treatment. I would be happy to provide you with their information. Anyhow, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexology.com sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.